All right, let's move over to chest wall deformities and tumors. So we'll move past my jokes and maybe a little history lesson here as we go. All right, a patient with pectus excavatum repair results in a significant improvement in DLCO, FEV1, heart rate, maximum voluntary ventilation, or residual lung volume. Which of those can be improved? Okay, the correct answer is four, and we'll go, we'll go over that. None of the others are improved. All right, so we're not just scientists here, right? We're also artists and human, humanists, and so let's have a little history, Sarah. So August Rodin, the French sculptor, there are these uh, famous sculptures called the Burgers of Calais. And so this is a, an event between, this is appropriate because Queen Elizabeth just died. So 100 years war between England and France, and so Calais was a stronghold, and uh, King Edward laid siege to the city, and they, they wore him down, and so he demanded that they present the leaders of the city come out and be executed. So these six burghers came out, and so Rodin sculpted this thing with these six people. It's called Heroism and Defeat. They're wearing nooses and chains, and he's going to take them to England and execute them. And his wife, Queen Philippa, interceded. She was actually French and spared their lives because she thought if he killed them, it would be a bad omen for their upcoming child. So, you know, I don't know if that's a great reason, but he spared them. Anyway, so the sculptures are great, but they're clothed in the, in the big sculpture of all six of them. But Rodin actually did full-size studies of these sculptures nude before. So he knew the body structure and then put them clothed. I mean, talk about commitment to your sculpture, right? So the nudes are actually spread around in different areas in the U.S., you can see them. And so I was in Stanford at, at their Rodin Sculpture Park, and one of these guys is here. I'm like, that guy's got a pectus. He has a pectus. So if you go there, and there's other places you can look it up, that one of the guys has a pectus. And so the Rodin, the, the thinker is like, hmm, should I fix that pectus, all right? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Should we fix the pectus? Here's your history lesson. All right, so pectus excavatum is a costal cartilage deformity results in sternal depression, so you get overgrowth. Too much rib and costal cartilage pushes the sternum down. It's typically asymmetric, tends to be deeper on the right side. It can be congenital and then get worse as they go through puberty. It's, it's rarely familial, it can kind of run in families, but there's not a like genetic marker for it, okay? They can also have scoliosis. It's typically a single curve in the mid-thoracic spine. You can see mitral valve prolapse in up to two-thirds of these patients. It may be mechanical because the heart is shifted to the left side and compressed, so it may alter the geometry of the mitral valve, and as many as two-thirds of Marfan patients have pectus excavatum, so it's kind of related to their connective tissue problem. It's kind of related to their height and their body stature. So this is sort of your typical pectus patient. Again, you can see that depression. They get some rib flaring with it. Again, this was kind of a little asymmetric, a little deeper on the right side here. Now, can you live with it? Sure, you can live with it your whole life, right? This will not shorten your lifespan. And this is Cody Miller, one of the U.S. Olympic athletes. This guy's a gold medalist on the Olympic relay team. So you can do pretty well with this condition. So there are subjective conditions. They can be asymptomatic. Sometimes they have pains. A lot of them will complain. They don't feel like they can breathe well. So it's not a breathing problem. It's not a lung problem, all right? You can be an Olympic swimmer, so that tells you you have adequate lung capacity. 
what they have is kind of a mild restrictive pattern and a and decreased maximum voluntary ventilation, right? You could see that swimmer. There's no way he's going to expand his chest as much as somebody that's barrel chested. What they do have is reduced stroke volume and cardiac output when they exercise. And that's because it's a limiting, it's a physical limitation on the right side of the heart. So none of us are hummingbirds, right? So when we exercise, our heart rate goes up, but it only goes so fast. And the other thing is our stroke volume goes up. Well, if you're limited on stroke volume, your heart can't expand when you exercise. You can only go so fast, and that's why they feel short of breath. But they're short of breath because they have inadequate cardiac output for their exercise. So they have what's called cardiac dyspnea. All right, so how do we work them up? Everybody gets an x-ray and sees the pectus. Then they get a CT scan, and that's really good for the bony detail and doing what's called a Haller index, where you measure AP to lateral uh, dimensions, and then cardiac MRI is a great way to do this. So it delineates not only anatomy, but the physiology. You can get flow loops on the heart to see that there's actual cardiac compression. So here's a chest x-ray again. You can see this distal sternal plate impinging on the heart. Here's a CT scan, okay? So your Haller index is the ratio of this side to side over this AP, and if it's over three, that's considered significant, but, you know, that's pretty significant just looking at it. And here's cardiac MRI. Again, you're going to get the anatomic detail, but also understand the flattening of the right heart and the uh, flow loops to help you understand that. So who do we operate on? It's okay to operate on somebody cosmetically. That's fine. A lot of these young people feel very self-conscious about uh, their chest, uh, uh, the, the way it looks, uh, their psychosocial conditions. So symptomatic, so they'll, they'll complain again of respiratory insufficiency, but it's a cardiac dyspnea. They'll have pain. And generally, you don't operate on infants with this, right? If you can get a one-year-old to tell you that they're having chest pain and cardiac dyspnea, well, go ahead and operate on them, but <laughs> good luck with that. A couple of repair techniques. So simple wedge osteotomy just to kind of flip the, the sternum up so it points up a little more. The Ravitch repair, so that subpericardial resection, transverse sternal osteotomy to kind of realign the sternum and then fixing it either with pins or wires or sometimes a plate behind the sternum. There's sternal eversion and then less invasive techniques with, a, with metal bars called the NUS procedure. So this is wedge osteotomy. All you do is take a little wedge out and then just tip it up and kind of wire it back in place so it points up a little better. This is sternal eversion, so you take this whole plate cut it off at the angulation point of the sternum, divide the ribs out where they're angulated, and then take the internal mammary artery on one side and preserve that as a pedicle, and then take the entire thing and flip it over. So if it's like that, you're going to flip the whole thing over, and then you're going to secure it in place with, with wires, and you're going to take out the excess cartilage so you have a nice flat contour. And often, so you don't end up with a convex sternum, you'll have to kind of shave off the front of the sternum and put the pectoralis muscles back. And then this is the nest bar technique. So it's, again, minimally invasive technique. You have this pre-shaped, or sometimes you shape the bar yourself, put it behind the sternum, and then 180 to do this. This works best in younger patients that are a little more bendy than it will in a 40-year-old, but it can be done in adults as well. Uh, the results of repair for pectus are great. So cosmetic results are excellent in most patients. Recurrence is pretty uncommon. It tends to be a little more common if you do it in a patient with a connective tissue disorder, or you do it in earlier childhood, and then they grow and form more cartilage and push the sternum back down again. There's no consistent improvement in their pulmonary function, although you will see you can measure maximum voluntary ventilation. That does increase. You will have improvement in cardiac output. You can demonstrate that. And some of the patients have res resolution of that right ventricular chamber compression and resolution of their mitral valve prolapse.
Okay, pectus carinatum. So this is the opposite. So this is anterior displacement of the body of the sternum, and you get sort of a concave, more kind of triangular shape to the chest, and that's because they don't grow enough, right? So the chest is naturally smaller. It can be asymmetric just on one side. Um, there's a condition called Currinino-Silverman syndrome where the whole chondromanubrial area is just solid bone. Uh, most of these patients are cosmetic treatment by shaving off cartilage or resecting it. A lot of them will have pain because they can't lay on their stomach. So that's usually the indication. So here it is. So again, a little asymmetric, a little higher on the right side, right where those ribs come in to meet the sternum. Uh, these are unusual sternal fissures. So you can have a superior cleft. You can close that uh, primarily. You can have a complete uh, cleft. Uh, they usually have an anterior diaphragmatic defect and uh, diastasis recti. That does require a pretty extensive operation to get the whole sternum back together where it belongs. And then don't forget Cantrell's pantology. So that's a distal sternal cleft omphalocele, anterior diaphragm defect, a defect in the pericardium, and some form of congenital heart disease, commonly a VSD, a tetralogy, ASD, or an LV diverticulum. Poland syndrome, you'll probably remember from medical school, this is vari variable absence of the pec major and minor, serratus, rectus, and then latissimus dorsi on one side. They can have hypomass here or absence of the breast as well. There's often abnormalities of the hand on the same, size, ten same side. tends to be more common in males. 75% um, on the right side, probably caused by some disruption of blood flow to the subclavian or vertebral arteries in utero. They comp these patients compensate quite well uh, since they have it since birth, so rarely do you have to do any kind of surgery for them. All right, let's move over to chest wall tumors. So the incidence of all bony tumors, this is a pretty small incidence, about 7 to 8%. Vast majority occur on the ribs. Half of those will be malignant, a small percentage of sternum, but most of those will be malignant. It tends to uh, involve males, two to one to females. The presentation is usually pain and, and or presence of a mass. It's more common to have pain in a malignant tumor. 20 to 25% will be asymptomatic when they're initially diagnosed. If they're older, it tends to be a more malignant uh, process. Everybody gets an x-ray, everybody gets a CT scan, but MRI is super helpful to delineate how these interact with the muscle and fibrous layers. General principles of treatment, so somebody presents with a chest wall tumor, excisional rather than incisional biopsy. Full thickness excision with one rib margin, that's your general rule of surgery. FNA really isn't all that helpful, but if they got a bunch of rib lesions, then you're going to go to that because that's probably metastatic disease. If it's a huge tumor, you're not going to be able to resect that uh, right up front or don't want to. Then you can do core needle biopsies, and our pathologists are pretty good about helping us with that. If it's a super large tumor, again, you can't get it with a needle. You can do an incisional biopsy. And remember, if they have a sternal tumor, a malignant sternal tumor, you're going to have to take the whole sternum out. All right, so anywhere from 50 to 80% of these are malignant. The, the conditions are listed here. 20 to 50% are benign, with about half of those being osteochondroma. So let's kind of walk through these. Chondrosarcoma, that's 50% of the malignant chest wall tumors and 25% of all primary chest wall tumors. It's most common in children and young adults. Most of these are in the sternum or the costochondral arches. It presents as a slowly enlarging, painful mass. Unfortunately, it's resistant to chemoradiation, and the five-year survival is really not that great. Osteogenic sarcoma overall is the most common bone tumor, but it's less common on the chest wall than chondrosarcomas. Again, younger patients associated with Paget disease and radiation. It's more aggressive than chondrosarcoma. It can be responsive to neoadjuvant chemotherapy and wide excision. Radiation doesn't work, and again, survival's 
pretty low, and it depends on, on whether it's an, uh, a met from another sarcoma somewhere else in the body or a primary. The Ewing sarcoma family tumors, again, these are more common in the pediatric and young adults. It's a painful mass, and the condition here has associated with fevers, weight loss, and malaise. It is an aggressive tumor with micrometastatic spread. Uh, chemotherapy can be helpful to take, take the whole rib out, but again, not a great tumor. Now, this is the one that occurs more commonly in older patients, so malignant fibro, fibrous histiocytoma, most common primary chest wall tumor in this age group. It's lobulated and spreads between the fascial planes. That's the characteristic of this tumor. It has a high recurrence after resection because, again, as it spreads like that, you may not get all of it out. Unfortunately, resistant to chemoradiation and pretty poor survival. All right, moving to the benign tumors, chondroma. This typically occurs at the costocartilage junction, typically seen in younger people. It's about 15 to 20% of benign chest wall tumors. It's a slowly enlarging, non-painful mass. It's possible for you to delineate on any preoperative testing whether this is malignant or benign, so that's why you resect it to see if there's any, any uh, malignant change in it. Osteochondromas, more common in males. Uh, if they have multiple, they may have a higher incidence of malignancy. It shows up as a cartilage-capped projection on the external surface of the bone. There's a marrow cavity that's continuous with underlying normal bone. You take it out if it's enlarging or you're concerned about the diagnosis or it hurts. And then fibrous dysplasia is just a condition where normal bone is replaced by fibrous stroma and an immature bone. It occurs in younger patients. It's painless, usually solitary. You really only have to resect that if it's painful or enlarged. So this is a diagram showing sternal resection. Again, what you have to do depending on the type of tumor. The general principles of reconstruction after resecting a chest wall tumor, if it's a small defect, you don't have to reconstruct it. If it's posterior, the scapula will cover that area. If it's bigger than about five centimeters, you're gonna need some sort of prosthetic material or, or muscle flap. The myocutaneous flaps are great, just remember where they are. So latissimus for the back, pectoralis for the upper anterior chest, rectus for the lower thorax. And don't forget about transposing some momentum up there to give you a nice vascular bed if it's an infected uh, wound or it's an irradiated wound that's not going to heal well so you have something that your skin graft or, or muscle will lie onto. This is from the Ferguson Atlas. Just remember that each of these muscle flaps has a primary and a secondary blood supply that you can use to rotate the muscle on to keep it alive and fill the defect. There are three chest wall defects that require reconstruction. So taking a tumor out from the sternum of chest wall like we talked about. Uh, we'll talk about post-pulmonary section empyemas and bronchopleural fistulas in another talk, and then mediastinitis. Again, the general principles of resection, two centimeter margin for a chest wall metastasis in a benign tumor, right? You're not gonna cure anybody from a metastasis, so you don't need a big resection. Four centimeter margins for osteogenic sarcomas and MFH, because these are the ones that can spread the marrow cavity. Use a bigger margin when you're in doubt. Remember, there can be chondromas, and they have a little bit of malignancy in them, so bigger margin's better. And again, if it's contaminated, try not to put prosthetic material in there. Use a muscle flap and momentum or whatever you need to do to get a healed wound. Uh, again, the rib lesions, you, you should take out the entire rib. If it's anterior, take out that costal arch, and you may need to do multiple ribs above and below, depending on the pathology. If there's something stuck underneath, take that, take that piece out of lung or thymus, whatever attached. Chest wall resection for metastatic breast cancer is controversial. Just understand that. And again, your goal for resecting any tumor that's necrotic is a wound that heals. So don't forget the omentum and muscle flaps. 
results for most of these patients, so it's selective patients that undergo these operations. Low mortality survival, again, depends on the underlying pathology. Bigger margin, you get better survival, obviously, with the malignant tumors. And don't forget adjuvant therapy for those conditions that warrant it. Which of the following statements regarding chest wall tumors is true? Malignant lesions are more common in the pediatric population. 80 to 90% arise from the sternum. Affected females outnumber males. Tumor excision should be full thickness with one rib margin. Defects less than 7 centimeters do not need reconstruction. Okay, your correct answer is four. Full thickness resection with a one rib margin. Okay.